Today we are continuing, and we're going to be finishing the letter of 1 John. So uh, this is our last sermon on this particular sermon series. And if you've been here for a while, you know we've been going through the last eight or so verses kind of slowly because uh, the Apostle John covers a lot in the last uh, section of the letter. And he goes from thought to thought, and he goes so quickly that there's some things that need to be kind of worked out, fleshed out a little bit. So that's what we've been doing in the last couple of weeks. And today we're going to be finishing looking at verses 18 through 21 in chapter 5. And so uh, if you have your Bibles or you'd like to follow along or it's just you want to watch on the screen, uh, we're going to read through this last section because the section kind of all flows together. But then we're going to focus on uh, verses 18 through the rest, 18 through 21. So he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he, hear, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we will have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin which leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin which does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. So one of the things that I've been realizing lately, and you might think that I'm kind of late to the game when it comes to this, is that I'm no longer in my 20s. I know it's, it's hard to believe, but uh, apparently it's true. Uh, I've noticed it a lot when I go to the gym. Uh, it takes me a lot longer to gain in strength, and it takes me a lot longer to lose weight than I did when I went to the gym in my 20s. It seems like when I was in my 20s, I could skip lunch, go to the gym, and I dropped like 30 pounds, but now it takes forever. And uh, about a week ago, I was looking at some pictures that Cindy had put out, my wife, because we had, we had had our anniversary. Our anniversary is on the 10th of August. And she had, she had put out the, our photo album just, and then just when she, before she went to work. So when I came home, it was there. And there's this picture that I saw, which kind of took me, you know, made me realize, man, I'm no longer in my 20s. And it was this one. And uh, yeah. Someone, uh, I heard someone say, that's crazy. No. <laughs> and what's funny is when you, when you get to a certain age, you start looking back over things. You know, like we were younger than our children are when this picture was taken. So Cindy and I were younger than our daughter and our son are when this picture was taken. When our daughter got married, Cindy and I were significantly older than our parents were when we got married. Our parents were in their 40s when Cindy and I got married. Cindy and I were in our 50s when, we got, uh, when our daughter got married. 
And as you get a bit older, I think some of you probably realize this when you start to get into your late 30s and 40s. It's kind of a strange thing as a believer, isn't it? When you realize that you've lived longer on the planet than Jesus did. That Jesus did his entire ministry in his early 30s. And when you get into, like when you're in your 20s, you're looking up to that. Here's a guy that's older than me, kind of like. But then you get in your 40s and 50s. I realized that if I met someone that was Jesus' age now, in fact, if I met Jesus now, I'd probably think, well, there's a guy that seems to have his life together for such a young feller, <laughs> you know? And when you start thinking like this, you realize, you know, you're no longer in your 20s. I mean, back then, when, if you were to ask that guy, who was relatively new in his faith, I'd been a believer for about four years at this time. If you had asked me if I was new in my faith at that time, I would have said, no. I've been a veteran of a lot of spiritual wars. I'm, I'm, I've been a believer for a long time. And at this point in my life, my faith was just all about victory in Jesus. That's all it was about. I just kind of went from one victory to another. I could care less about things like financial security. I could have cared less about worrying about health, my health or Cindy's health. I had zero perspective really, on what life was going to be about. And I didn't care. I didn't miss that I didn't have much perspective. You can't miss something when you've never had it. I knew that Jesus was Lord, and that's all I needed to rely on. And while I can say that I've had a lot of victory in Jesus throughout my life, at this point in my life, I also know that there's just a lot of hanging on in Jesus. Where you're just hanging on from day to week, to month, to year, sometimes decades, where that victory in Jesus is definitely present, but there's a lot of just hang on in Jesus. I should write, I thought about maybe writing a worship song called Hanging On in Jesus, but then I thought it'd be kind of depressing, so. <laughs> and I've also learned, though, as you get a bit older, there are some things that, that I've kind of gotten at peace with. And one of the things I've come to peace with, even though it's still a difficult thing, is actually kind of what uh, Andrea said just briefly that her daughter had asked her. And that's the idea that as Christians, we follow a perfect and holy God in an imperfect and unholy world. And very often, I think as believers, this, this is sometimes a little bit hard for us to wrap our heads around because we do expect that if we follow a perfect and holy God as believers, then everything should, be, should just go easy for us. But we forget that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's affected by sin. And it's not just the nature of it that's affected by sin, but the, what we do to each other, what human beings do to each other. The question, you know, when people ask me that question that was asked to Andrea, which people ask me all the time, I say, first of all, the world we live in is fallen. It's not perfect. And there's no expectation that it's going to ever become perfect. It's going to be redone completely. But it's not going to slowly rehabilitate itself to become perfect. And secondly, as human beings, the vast majority of the agony and the hurt in the world is because we as human beings do terrible things to one another. And we are involved in systems which bring about poverty. We're involved in systems. Like in Turkey, all, many of these buildings collapsed because the builders had cut corners. And they hadn't built them to withstand the earthquakes, which is what they were supposed to do. And so they collapsed. That is the result of sin. That's not just the result of the earth shaking. It's the result of people saying, the money is more important than the safety of those who live in these buildings. And so they collapsed. 
And we have this taking place in various different ways through various different means all around the world, all the time. We're the major cause of misery to one another. Not random earthquakes or tsunamis. Us. And as I've gotten older, I've known that, you know, this is, this is something that, that can be a bit of a spiritual difficulty because we keep our eyes on this, this perfect God, or we're supposed to keep our eyes on this perfect God, and yet we're immersed in this imperfect world, and it can become exhausting sometimes. It can even be, it can be confusing. It can be disappointing. And in the scripture, we're encouraged over and over again, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Like Peter walking on the water. And none of this was planned, by the way. That's when you know there's the serendipity of God. You know, when Peter walked on the water, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he could stay walking on the water. The scripture says when he began to look around and he saw the storms around him, then the fear began to creep into his life. His faith faltered and he sinks into the cold, dark abyss of the ocean. And yet, with all that said, as much as I know up here, as much as I would like to be forever consistent in keeping my eyes on Jesus, there are times I feel like a chameleon. I have one eye pointing at Jesus. I have one eye pointing at the world. And I'm just trying to blend in so that the predators of the world don't get to me. And I go through my faith with this kind of hopeful eye on Christ, fearful eye on the world, and hoping somehow the enemy misses me when he goes about creating havoc within the world. And I think when John wrote this letter that we've been going through, as well as the gospel of John, personally, I believe, and I'm not the only one that does, that he was writing this later on in his life, perhaps even near the end of his life. And he is someone that had seen a lot when it comes to the church and when it comes to faith, he had seen the early church begin with this hopeful thing of the resurrected Jesus, the ascension of Christ into heaven, the powerful beginning of it through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We've been going, we began the, the Thursday evening Bible study last Thursday. We're going through the book of Acts, and it begins with so much activity, the power and the presence of the Holy, Holy Spirit. He saw the church grow tremendously, but he also saw the church become influenced by sin he saw that sin creeped back into the church and it brought with it destruction it brought with it confusion it brought with it depression and so in this letter that he writes here and if you've been with us for the last several weeks you know he covers all these issues in this letter but he ends it with a few words of perspective so after talking about sin and he points out that all sin is wrong but that most sin can be recovered from at least spiritually it doesn't have to lead to death you can repent of it we talked about the sin that leads to death being the blasphemy of the holy spirit but other than that most sins can be in fact all sins can be repented of and turned away from you may have the physical consequences of it but the spiritual death doesn't need to have to take place he then goes on to describe what it's like to live with eternal hope within a fallen world look what he says he says we know that anyone born of god does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. So he begins by giving us this insight of how John understands the believer's fight with sin. And he, and he, 
phrases this sentence, it's kind of an awkward sentence, really, the way it translates. But what he's saying here is that he first says, anyone born of God does not continue to sin. And yet we know from the rest of the letter of John, what he's not saying is that Christians never sin. He says they do not continue to sin. Now, before going on, I want to make it clear that you will hear people teach that once you're a Christian, you never sin anymore. And actually, some fairly prominent you know, teachers will say, once you are a Christian, you never sin anymore. And I would just contend that the Bible tells you differently. And John tells you differently. Now, it's true that if you are in Christ, you are not regarded by God as a sinner. You're regarded by God like he sees you as, a, as Christ, as covered in the righteousness of Christ. But the scripture, and in fact, if you read the rest of 1 John, if you go back and read through it, he's dealing with the fact that, yeah, Christians do sin. It happens. But what he's talking about here is that the person who has given their life to Christ should not live a life that is characterized by continuous, unrepentant sin. This is what he talks about. They do not continue to sin. That their life is not characterized by continuous, unrepentant sin. Now, this is different from sinning occasionally and repenting. This is a person that is involved their life and their life is characterized by being involved in a continuous and unrepentant sin. And why do I say that? Well, the scripture tells us over and over again, a life that has been transformed by Jesus Christ should have the evidence of salvation in that life. And the evidence of salvation is that our lives should be characterized by the character of Christ. And we often talk about this being the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the characteristics of a person whose life is being patterned after Christ. These are the characteristics that should be growing within us. Now, they don't all grow at the same pace. And by nature, some of us are more easily able to grow, say, in the area of patience. Just because we're wired that way, then we are maybe in the area of joy. But these are the characteristics of a person whose life has been transformed by Christ. This is how our lives should be characterized, not by sin. And it's interesting that as a pastor, I can tell you over the years, and as an elder, and when we've had other elders we've, I've walked with in the church here, Sometimes we are put in the very uncomfortable situation of having to address someone whose life has become characterized by a continuous, unrepentant sin. And very often when we have to address that and we go through the process, we do it like the scripture says, we go to them alone. If that doesn't work, they get, we go to them with, as elders. If that doesn't work, we bring it before the church and usually when the church becomes aware that we are going down this path of having to deal with the sin, we get some pushback. And the pushback almost always is, well, why are, you, why are you making that person have to deal with their sin? Everybody sins. What about everyone else? And the difference usually is, is the one that we're addressing has chosen to become, to involve their lives in a continuous, unrepentant sin. This is different from the person that Oh, I screwed this up. I shouldn't have done that. Lost my temper. Looked at something I shouldn't look at on the internet. You know, things like that. And then they repent and walk away from it. Or at least they fight and to walk away from it. It doesn't become the thing that characterizes their life. We address those things that have characterized a person's life. 
An example would be, say, someone decides that they're going to go and have an affair. And I'm not talking about anyone in particular. This is kind of a generic thing that happens, you know, and it's kind of one that's obvious to a lot of people. A person leaves their, their spouse for another person. They have involved themselves in a continuous action of sin by involving themselves in the life of another person, forsaking their spouse, and they are unrepentant. We go to them and say, don't do this. And they say, I'm going to do it anyway. Well, no, this is not what God wants for you as a believer. If you're a believer, there are certain expectations. I don't care. That is a continuous, unrepentant sin, and then we have to address it. Again, this is very different than someone who just falls into a sin that doesn't characterize their life. These are sins that are usually quickly repented of. If a person repents of it, it gets back into a place where they're following God, even if it's a place that they tend to go back to, because most of us have an area in our life that we just fight with and we just struggle with. And it becomes this place that even with our frustration, we, we get very uh, frustrated with ourselves, but it's, it's not what characterizes our life. For example, I'll tell you, one of the things I struggle with is I have a temper and Cindy's about the only one that's really seen the temper in its full-blown glory. And it's not, it's not something pretty. There's a lot of screaming. It's childish. It's like I have a temper tantrum. A lot of words come out of my mouth which aren't necessarily edifying to the Lord or to anyone else. But when I tell you that, some of you have a hard time believing that because you've never seen that. Why don't you see it? Because it's not what characterizes my life. It happens. I repent of it. But by my character, I'm not an angry person all the time. I don't justify the sin by saying, well, it's just who I am, so get over it and just freak out all over the place. It's something I struggle with, but it's not my character. And I don't sit in this place of unrepentance. I never sit there and go, well, it's just the way I am, so I don't care. Because that's what a lot of people do. They get to this place and they say, it's just the way you are. It doesn't matter. You don't need to change. That's what the world tells you. And the world's telling us that a lot right now. It doesn't matter what weird deviation you've got in your life. And we all have them. But the world's saying, hey, celebrate all those sins. It's just who you are. And it's all okay. And it's not. And then again, someone might push back and say, but, but John says that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. You're watering this down. And to them, I would say this. John also says the one who is born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. And we have to understand when John writes here, the evil one cannot harm him. He is writing it from the perspective of a guy who has seen many of his friends die at the hands of evil men. So how can he write that the evil one will not harm the one who is born of God if what he means is that you never will go through any kind of physical kind of harm when very early, for example, in the book of Acts, James, one of the three closest apostles to Jesus, James, Peter, and John were the inner three. James dies. He's executed. How can he say this? When probably at the time he's writing this, he's one of the last guys standing. The Gospel of John gives us the indication that Peter, uh, John knew how Peter was going to die. If you read the last chapter in the Gospel of John, he says, he gives this little aside that Jesus said this thing to Peter because he was indicating the way that Peter would die, which tells us John knew how Peter was going to die. 
So when he's writing this gospel, Peter had already died. And tradition tells us Peter was crucified upside down. Because Peter told the people that were crucifying him he wasn't worthy to die in the manner of his Savior. So they crucified him upside down. So how can he say this? Well, this is one of the things in the Bible that we have to deal with. That John very often writes, and many times in the Bible, you get this thing coming at the same time where you have this ideal and you have this reality. You have the physical, you have the spiritual. You have many different things going on all at the same time. And we know that he understands that we live in a broken, fallen world because he says so. Look what he says. He says, we know that we are the children of God. Then look at this other part. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. John knows this. He knows that we walk as children of God in a broken and fallen world. And he says, and we know also that the Son of God has come to give us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. Again, I've told you this before, but this is kind of a weird way in English translation to say, and we know, and we are in him who is true, his son, Jesus Christ. This even in is kind of a poetic way of trying to, to say, and, we're, and he's talking about Jesus Christ. And then he says, he is the true God and eternal life. So what does it mean then to know that the world is under the control of the evil one? How does this affect the way we see the world and we see God? And we've talked about this. We've been talking about this. One of the things the Holy Spirit does is it gives us an awareness that all is not as it should be. I don't know about you, but there was a time in my life before I was a believer that I really didn't have a deep understanding of how corrupt and how screwed up the world is. I didn't really understand that about people either. And I didn't understand it about myself. I think the hardest thing we come to understanding when it comes to understanding our sin and our need to repent of it is we have to come to an understanding that we're not, we're not okay. That we have issues that we have to deal with. We have places in our life we are an act of rebellion against God. We are doing things in our life which is damaging our soul. And it's the Holy Spirit that helps us understand this. And it's the Holy Spirit that then makes us aware that this world is a fallen place. You know, the question again, like why does God allow bad things to happen, is a sign that the awareness is not there yet. That this world is broken. You know, we, we, lit, we have church in this beautiful area here. We look out, we see the trees. The sun is shining right now. It seems like everything is wonderful. But many of you come from nations that it is broken, and it's really obvious that it's broken. It's like this summer. We've had this, we've, we've been told there's a heat wave going through Europe. Have you felt the heat wave here? I mean, today is warm, but in general, has it been hot and dry in Dusseldorf? No. I mean, I read about this heat wave. And I'm like, what part of Europe are you talking about? Because up park up where I'm living in, it's like Noah's coming, man. There's been so much rain. How can you say it's a heat wave? Today's not a good example. But last, yes, last week, you know, last Saturday, right before the baptisms, I know a lot of us were praying, come on, Lord. Because Saturday, it was raining buckets. It's kind of the same with the world. Sometimes we live in certain places of the world. It's hard for us to see how badly broken the world is. But it is badly broken.
And there will be a time when this is brought to an end. There will be a time. The scripture tells us when God steps in and this comes to an end. And that will be a day of rejoicing and a day of mourning. It will be a day of rejoicing because when God breaks in and ends it, the tyranny of Satan, the the tyranny of sin, the brokenness of this world, the misery that it brings along with it is going to end. But it will be a time of grief as well because those who have not given their lives to Christ will also face an ultimate end. And I've always wondered about the Christians that just can't wait for Christ to come back and put an end to all this. It tells me they must not have many people that they love in this world who aren't believers. Because I have people whom I love. And they're not believers. And every day God in his grace allows this world to go on is another day that they have a chance to come to know the Lord. And I want them to know the Lord. And I know that while I may rejoice when the end comes because I know what side I'm on. I know that I have many loved ones who are on the side of destruction. And I don't want it to stay that way. I want them to have that chance to change. Many powerful movements of God in the Bible are described as the great and terrible day of the Lord. Again, as we go uh, in Acts chapter 2, there's this part in Joel. And and in Acts, Peter describes it as the great and glorious day of the Lord. But if you go to the book of Joel, it's the great and terrible day of the Lord. Because it's great in that God is ushering in a new era. A new era of hope. A new era of life. But it's terrible. Because those who cling to that old era are swept away. It's the great and terrible day of the Lord. However, with all this in mind, John is quick to remind us that whether we are living in times that are difficult or in times of peace, we have this rock-solid anchor of our faith in Christ. And coming back to this, and what, and what is it like coming back to this idea of you know, the summer we've had in Dusseldorf? You know, even though the days have been warm, for most, much of the summer, the sun has been hidden by the clouds, Right? And if you've lived here long enough in this beautiful city of Dusseldorf or Metman and this surrounding area, I live in Rattigan now. In the wintertime, the sun, you can see it, but it's just this pale disk in the sky. And sometimes the clouds are so thick that while we know it's daytime, we can't see the sun at all. And sometimes this is what it's like to live in the world that has sin. Our own sin or the sin of those around us. We know that on a cloudy day, the sun doesn't shine any less brightly. There's just clouds in the way. We know in the wintertime when all you see is that pale disk in the sky, it's not because the sun's been turned down. It's just, it's the atmospheric conditions we're in. And we know that when we can't see it at all, like, it, like this picture here, it's not like someone took the sun away. We don't live in fear that, oh my gosh, maybe the sun was taken away. And in our lives and in this world, sometimes because of our own sin, sometimes because of the sin around us, very often it's both. The sin around us can obscure the light of Christ in our lives. And it doesn't mean that Jesus shines any less brightly. It just means our sin gets in the way. 
And we don't need to fear that just like on a cloudy day doesn't mean the sun was taken away. We don't need to fear that Jesus has gone away. But we also need to know that it's our own sin, our own ignorance, our own fear, our own doubt that can obscure our faith. And the fact that this world is in control of the evil one, as John puts it, also obscures things. We don't live in a world that allows us to have an unobscured view of what it really means to live in the presence of God. It's just the way it is. Now there will come a time where our sin and our ignorance and our fear and our doubt is going to be removed, our own and all that from other sources as well. And on that day, we'll finally understand really what it means to be in the presence of God. The Apostle Paul writes about it in this way. And I reverted to the King James because I like one of the phrases that's here. He says this, though. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. So it's not there yet. And Paul knows this. He says, right now we're not in a place where we understand and see everything perfectly. There will come a time when we do, but we're not there yet. He says, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And this is the phrase I, I like. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then I shall know, even as I am known. I like this phrase, through a glass darkly. You know, if you read some of your modern other English translations, it makes it refer, it seems like it's referring to a mirror that you don't really see your image clearly in. But I think more of it's like, you know, in the time of Paul, having clear glass like this, they didn't have that. This was a technology that wasn't invented yet. Ironically, when you put lead into glass, it, you get this clear thing that we have is, is glass you can see through. Leaded crystal, for example, is the clearest glass. But back in his time, if you, the glass had all these imperfections in it, and if you tried to look through it, it was obscured. You couldn't really see perfectly through it. Like now I can look out through these windows here, and I can see that the trees are there, and it's clear. But if these were the windows that were in the time of Paul, first of all, they'd be much, much smaller because they couldn't do this wide window thing. It would be very obscured. You could barely see through it. You would know there's something out there, but the details of it would be hard to understand or to discern. And this is what he says. For now we see through a glass darkly. Then, though, it'll be as if we're face to face. Nothing between us. The sin is gone. The arrogance is gone. The ignorance is gone. Not of just our own, but of the whole world around us. And then we will know God, our creator, just as intimately and deeply as he knows us, his creation. For then I shall know even as I am known. And this is what we look forward to. But until this happens, we live in this world that is broken. It's just the way it is. And we need to realize it because if we are going to be able to be people of hope, we can't walk around and be just destroyed and disappointed every time something goes wrong. Because there are going to be things that go wrong. Sometimes it'll be your own fault. Most of the time we're our own worst enemy. Sometimes it'll be the issues of others that brought into our lives. Sometimes directly. A person that directly affects your life. Sometimes it'll be you're just directed by, affected by the machinery of broken humanity. 
And then finally, we have the last line of John in this letter. He says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I've told you personally, I think there must have been more to the ending of this letter because his other two letters, 2 John, 3 John, he ends with more of an, a proper ending. You know, you, you, it's clear he's coming to the end. But maybe not. Maybe this is just where he ended. He just ended it there and didn't bother to say anything more. But regardless, it is a fitting ending. Because at the end, as we go through this life, John reminds us, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't be looking at idols. And there's so many things that can draw us away in idols. We tend to think because in this modern society, we're kind of beyond the idea of worshiping idols of stone and idols of wood. And we're not. They not, may not be statues that we worship. But you know, people used to worship idols of stone and idols of wood, hoping for prosperity, for health, for peace, for security. And that's basically what we worship money for. We want money to be our place of prosperity, for health, for peace, for our security. There's, we're not going to get into money today, but that's one of the main idols that we have. And the reason why we are told in the scriptures to hang on loosely and to be generous and to even give back to God is because it is so easy for us to look to money to give us all these things. Health, prosperity, peace, security. The same way people used to look at idols. And in my particular country's uh, currency, we take it a next step further. We claim on it in God we trust. As we hoard all that. Bits of paper that we think are going to make us secure. So the fitting place to end is to remind us that we need to keep our eyes on Christ. And we need to get those chameleon eyes more firmly onto Christ. They need to be pointing straight to the cross of Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we can run this race of life, casting off those chains of sin. Because, brothers and sisters, we don't live for ease in this life. And that does seem to be what a lot of people are going for. I want a life of ease. We don't live for ease. We live for eternity. And sometimes to live for eternity means that we have to forego the ease of this life. So don't become discouraged. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the Apostle John. And Lord, the, how the Bible is very pragmatic in so many ways. It's just talking about issues that were as relevant thousands of years ago when this is written. They're just as relevant now as they were then. Those issues of where do we put our security the issues of what it means to live as a believer in Christ in a broken and fallen world. The issue of living a spiritual ideal in a, in a physical universe which is not an ideal. And Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom so that when we have questions asked, and it is a common question, why does a good God let bad things happen, that we could be able to explain That this is not an ideal situation. But there is hope in Christ to get through those difficult times now. And we look forward to the time when there is not a rehabilitation of creation, but there is a complete recreation. Just as Christ was raised from the dead and we will be raised from the dead to eternal life, there will be a recreation where is a complete redoing. 
And Father, as we go through this time, may you protect us from the enemy and from the things around us that cause us to get disappointed or discouraged or confused. And for those who may be in a place of unrepentant sin, maybe your Holy Spirit has revealed something in their lives or our lives, and we've been struggling with really giving it over to you. Pray in Jesus' name that we would trust you, give things over to you so we can walk closely with you and our lives to be characterized by the character of Jesus Christ. And in this, we will be salt and light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.